And good afternoon, and welcome to Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez, uh, letting you know that Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw will be back in a few weeks. During these weeks, we'll be bringing you special programming for our fall fun drive. And today, for the next half hour, you're going to be listening to a rebroadcast of a conversation between Sunday Seditions, Andrea Lewis, and renowned author Rebecca Solnit, who's uh, Bay Area's own. And they're going to be talking about Solnit's latest book, A Paradise. Excuse me, a paradise built in hell, which travels through five major North American disasters, including the 9-11 attacks in New York and Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. So without further ado, we go to Andrea Lewis, and she starts with an excerpt of last week's President Obama's speech on health care. Stay with us. That large-heartedness, that concern and regard for the plight of others is not a partisan feeling. It's not a Republican or a Democratic feeling. It, too, is part of the American character, our ability to stand in other people's shoes, a recognition that we are all in this together, that when fortune turns against one of us, others are there to lend a helping hand. President Barack Obama, and I thought that was really appropriate to Rebecca Solnit's new book, A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. She's been talking quite a lot about this, particularly because of so many anniversaries. The anniversary of Hurricane Katrina was not that long ago, and also um, the anniversary, obviously, of the September 11th attacks, which she talks about both of those at length in this book. So, Rebecca, nice to see you. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Rather than me sort of describing what this book is about, give us the the one paragraph nugget about what this book uh, tries to talk about. Okay, from the prelude. What is this feeling that crops up during so many disasters? After the Loma Prieta quake of 1989, I began to wonder about it. After 9-11, I began to see how strange a phenomenon it was and how deeply it mattered. After I met the man in Halifax who lit up with joy when he talked about the great hurricane there, I began to study it. After I began to write about the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco as its centennial approached, I started to see how often this peculiar feeling arose and how much it remade the world of disaster. After Hurricane Katrina tore up the Gulf Coast, I began to understand the limits and possibilities of disasters. This book is about that emotion, as important as it is apprising, and the circumstances that arouse it and those that it generates. These things count as we enter, enter an era of increasing and intensifying disaster. And more than that, they matter as we enter an era when questions about everyday social possibilities and human nature arise again, as they often have in turbulent times. So, different kinds of disasters, there are these quote-unquote natural disasters, and I say quote-unquote because you, you kind of say that there really isn't such a thing, right? Or um, uh, You know, an earthquake may, uh, an earthquake is natural, but the buildings that fall on you aren't. That's right. And uh, something like Hurricane Katrina was sort of natural if you discount climate change and its origins and turned pretty quickly into a social catastrophe. In A Paradise Built in Hell, you, obviously there's a lot of disasters in history that you can focus on, and you had to narrow the scope. Talk about how you went about doing that, and and you tried to focus for the most part on the good things that happened. I'm sort of compounding my question, please forgive me, but because um, this book is so okay. rich, it, it's kind of rich and, and deep, and there's a lot of things that come to mind, but you, you talk about basically there's this image of disasters that we get through Hollywood. 
Hollywood. And it's always about people screaming and running and trampling each other. And then Will Smith kind of rides in er, and saves the day. It used to be Bruce, Will Bruce Willis or somebody like yeah, that, right? I think Will Smith, if you're lucky, Charlton Heston, if you're not. <laughs> right. Um, but that, that is not the reality of what usually happens through your research. You found this out, right? No, the paragraph I read is about this weird joy. I remember from my, my own and my friend's experiences in the Loma Prieta quake that was really kind of the emotion around 9-11. And although that wasn't really joy, but people felt connected, purposeful, urgent, wide open emotionally and intellectually to the deepest questions about life and death and foreign policy and the role of America in the world and our oil politics and whether we needed to change profoundly, etc. and openness, the Bush administration shut down fairly effectively for most, but definitely not all people. But to back up to four or five of your other questions. Thank you. <laughs> You're funny. Yeah, well, you know, that was a compound question, but, uh, you know, you know, you always get compound answers out That's of me. That's true. Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that emotion uh, reveals this deep desire, I think, to be a member of civil society, to have meaningful work, to be connected, to uh, feel like you have power and a voice and agency, whether it's only in your own neighborhood where you've built the community kitchen or pulled people out of rubble. Mm -hmm. And I think those, not only those desires, but their fulfillment are really squished out in so many ways in ordinary life and in a weird way this book is about the way that everyday life is, is such a disaster that even disaster can liberate us from it a disaster of alienation isolation purposelessness mm -hmm. powerlessness and people sometimes not always but sometimes recover those things in disaster that's really important the other really important thing about it is that the myth we're given of disaster is a myth about human nature the myth is that in the absence of institutional authority with its threat of violence, um, we revert to being barbaric, marauding, raiding, murdering, raping, pillaging savages. And what's really interesting is in the absence of institutional authority and in the emergency of a major disaster, we actually revert to, not to Hobbes with his sort of nasty, brutish and short uh, war of each against each worldview, but maybe to Kropotkin with mutual aid. People improvise, they take care of each other. Uh, they really respond with incredible resourcefulness, resilience, bravery, and uh, generosity. And, you know, and so it's really like that's what's been repressed by the system, not the other way around. And so I think... You know, this is important for preparing for disasters like the earthquakes that, uh, you know, we in the East Bay in San Francisco are looking at in the next 30 years is an almost certainty, the major earthquake. Uh, but I think it's also important to ask big questions about everyday life, these fundamental questions about who are we, who could we be, what kind of a society do we want to need and are we capable of, and what kinds of stories are we willing to swallow about who we are. And it's interesting how many people were ready to believe in the wake of Katrina that, and of course, of course, it was um, very heavily racially tinged, but um, yeah, yeah. Reading but, your book, thinking back about Fox News and how they totally were oh, but not just, these flames. Not, not just, just Fox. I mean, the New York Times and all right. these papers that get called liberal. And then the media kind of fell apart in these really interesting ways. A lot of people on the ground, including Shepard Smith, or whatever the hell his name is of Fox News, became... This ad, like a, an advocate for the people of New Orleans, he was angry and outraged and denouncing the government and the way that people couldn't just walk across the bridge that had been shut off by the racist sheriff of Gretna. And, uh, you know, while 
uh, people far away were willing to believe every rumor of everything up to and including cannibalism that was spreading and uh, anticipating hundreds of deaths and things that turned out not to happen and suddenly becoming passionate about minor property crimes and like San Francisco in 1906 suddenly the government and a lot of people in power thought the death penalty for alleged minor property crimes was a really great appropriate thing you should be carrying out without trial most of your book uh, paradise built in hell focuses on kind of the good things that happen in terms of community being created you really got in also into this vigilanteism that that came out after katrina talk about that yeah i went to new orleans really to look at the volunteers and the way that people were putting things back together looking at where the mutual aid the empathy the creativity had been in Katrina and I found a lot of it I still feel the most neglected story of Katrina is this incredible effort that's like Freedom Summer multiplied a thousandfold to bring New Orleans back that's mm. built a lot of alliances across race and you know brought people from all over the country and the world to New Orleans and really woken a lot of people up about race and class and poverty and um, you know to say nothing of uh, uh Hurricanes and engineering around rising waters and et cetera, but uh, the army but you know, but the question yeah. is, most people behave really well in disasters. Some people don't, and so in order to understand why most of us do, you need to also understand why some of us don't. And of course, it matters terribly because the people who don't are often the people with the most power. In San Francisco, it was the military who staged a essentially a hostile occupation of the city in 1906 and began mm -hmm. shooting people pretty uh, freely in the name of maintaining order and preventing that, you know, minor theft that gets kind of called looting, which is itself an incendiary word. Right. And shooting all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons that didn't have anything to do with either. So when Katrina really repeated that, the governor and the mayor decided to pull people off search and rescue to protect property, which is a pretty crazy set of priorities. And, and not let others from outside bring yeah, in help. Not let help. Not let people out, not let people in, uh, not let supplies in, uh, etc. But then also, you know, all these rumors and rumors are really a uh, major part of what go, what can go wrong in disaster and I want this book to help people stop believing all those stories about the reversion to barbaric savagery and uh, you know the worst crimes committed in Katrina were by people who believed that they represented order and uh, preservation of the existing status quo and that to do so they had to mow down other people and so far as we can tell they did the police certainly killed people it looks like they killed a lot more people than we currently know the vigilantes in Algiers Point the mostly white community across the river um, definitely shot people uh, almost certainly killed people from all the pieces AC Thompson put together um, uh, with the material I, I handed over a to journalist. Mm -hmm. yeah, investigative journalist AC right. Thompson now in New York and you can point out how with Spike Lee's film uh, When the Levees Break which a lot of people have seen uh, either in theaters or, or on cable uh, that he has testimony from a man who you have spent a lot of time with who shows everybody his the buckshot and the the slice in his neck from where they were removing buckshot and then the movie kind of just goes on to the next thing uh, without really investigating it uh, further. Yeah, well, Spike Lee was making a Talking Heads documentary just let everybody tell their own story rather mm -hmm. than kind of 
cross-examine and fact-check them. But it is one of the stranger parts of that movie. Danell Harrington, who's this very lovely, sweet guy, a Bronx, a Brinks truck driver at the time of Katrina, who decided not to evacuate to take care of his grandparents and ended up evacuating or, you know, rescuing when his grandparents' housing projects flooded, you know, more than a hundred people by boat um, himself became a victim when these vigilantes decided he was a looter, which is of course totally crazy uh, you know and clearly about his skin color uh, he's a black guy, but you know he's just trying to evacuate he's got this good job where he drives around millions of you know hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cash at a time and the last thing you want when you're evacuating a destroyed region is somebody else's TV in your knapsack <laughs> and uh, you know it was just completely crazy but they shot him point blank uh, twice and he told his story on Spike Lee's documentary that's where I first became aware of it and nobody investigated and it was this is one of the things that makes me crazy about Katrina as I went there and there were so many pieces making it clear that though the crimes everybody reported on the first week didn't happen all these crimes that didn't get reported on did including these vigilantes and some other kinds of brutality and i think people still don't understand the reason that you know i went and rented that movie escape from new york to f- because it's you know it's a wacky vintage sci-fi but it's about new york city being turned into a penal colony shut off from the main world and you get shot at if you try and leave and that's what new orleans was for a week you couldn't walk across the bridge right next to the convention center in superdome the sheriff of gretna and a whole bunch of other armed men were firing shots over people's heads and threatening them turn them back at gunpoint you know they there was just all these i it didn't have to happen and that's one of the things people need to understand is that the hurricane was not man made but the social you know the subsequent crisis was so the vigilantes also were part of that social crisis they were people in some cases i think who just saw this as an opportunity to have the race war that's always been kind of seething in this certain parts of the white imagination in the south and in a lot of cases really believed that um everybody was going to go crazy and barbaric and that they had to defend themselves and of course the truth is that they were the most crazy and barbaric thing in new the greater new orleans region and the disaster sociologists i talked to call it elite panic people who mm. identify with or represent the status quo who um feel like they're defending it and you know you can either say this is not our status quo or maybe that our status quo is pretty violent and bloodthirsty and ruthless at times. Our guest Rebecca Solnit is talking with us about her new book, A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities that Arise in Disaster. So I think Tom uh, Dispatcher, Tom Engelhart, uh, described you as a, that you had a lot of originality and boldness in your writing, which I, I really agree with. And your books, when I read them, I just, so many things come up. I was definitely thinking about Loma Prieta, which seems minor compared to, I mean, I, I don't even know if you could call it a disaster as much as a, a kind of interruption uh, of things with some some disastrous events happening within it. But um, just what happened then and the way people did uh, kind of come together and how scary uh, it was. And that led to you becoming a nerd. <laughs> 
which is distinct from a newt and a nerd, I have to specify. Though sometimes yeah. the nerdy thing, I'm imagining with your hard hat in it, oh, I man. think that, that it probably looks a little nerdy, but... You but know, ex- and <laughs> the extra large size vest, yeah, it's not not fashion attire. So you know, this is one of the things I, that came I out did, of disaster. You know, I would call Loma Prieta a disaster because it did a lot to Watsonville and Santa Cruz. It That's really, true. you know... Um, disrupted everything in the greater bay area region 60 people died Mm -hmm. uh you know freeways collapsed the marina was on fire it was pretty big i think it's a testimony to building codes and pretty good behavior on the part of ordinary people and institutional authorities that it wasn't a bigger disaster Mm. but one of the things that i think is really profound there is that the city of san francisco behave very differently than a lot of cities have in disasters. They recognize that they did not have the resources even in this relatively minor disaster with an epicenter 60 or so miles away to respond to all the things that would arise that rather than treat the citizens as they had been in 1906 or in Katrina as enemies or liabilities or you barbarians know. or right yeah that we they we really needed to treat them as allies and resources which of course is you know it's not like they somehow magically make us allies and resources when people people don't need the government to turn them into people who respond appropriately and the truth of the matter is that in a major disaster the neighbors will probably rescue you before search and rescue teams let alone tv cameras get there the tv cameras usually get there behind the search and rescue rescue crews, which is why it looks like professionals are doing it. But so NERT, I know I'm getting a little digressive here, That's neighborhood emergency response teams, and I believe Berkeley has a similar program, was really just to give people permission to be first responders, give them some training and triage and searching buildings and deciding what's safe to enter, what not, and fighting mm-hmm. fires and doing some basic first aid and in liaisoning with firefighters and other emergency personnel and communicating. And it's really kind of wonderful in saying we trust you you have the power and this is what is exciting and meaningful for me about uh, disasters there are moments when we see the enormous power of civil society of people to rise to the occasion and that's where the joy comes from that i started this book with and that i find so powerful that people you know when people when we feel that membership as we do sometimes in moments like the great marches before the war broke out and uh sometimes festivals and carnivals and revolutions as well as disasters when people feel like they're member a member of something greater themselves, when they feel they have power and agency and a voice, when they feel they have a deep purpose and that what they do matters, there's an incredible joy we hardly even talk about because we only talk about private pleasure, you know, sex and domestic life and consumption and, and things like that in this culture. But there are these public pleasures that are also what our society is made out of if we have a strong society. They matter and we see them here. So that idea that we all have this within us, I think, is something that's important. And not to say that, again, the police and firefighters don't deserve uh, their credit for heroism, but that seemed to be a main thing that you wanted to do was point out these everyday folks who are doing the right thing. You know, the Hollywood movies that most of us have been raised on... Uh, you know, it's really kind of their product requires strong leading man heroes, action figures in the foreground. And that kind of requires that the rest of us be helpless and stupid and need rescuing, etc. You know, screaming women, stampeding crowds. You know, that in order to have a leader, you need to create followers. And so the movies really depict us. And I think it serves the status quo, the idea that we need institutional authority and strong men and bosses, etc. But what you see in disasters is that people... 
you know, organize themselves and each other's and the neighborhoods pretty well. And it's not necessarily going to be the guy who looks most like Charlton Heston who's going to do the most for you. But, uh, you know, and people are really doing it for themselves and each other. It's And this stuff is really amazing. You talked about 9-11 and the firemen and policemen did a lot of really great and valuable stuff. Although those firemen had good communications equipment or just better decision making from their bosses. They wouldn't have been going into that building the way that they did. And there was a lot of ways they were really set up to, to die and 347 of them did and mm. didn't really need to. But, you know, 25,000 people got themselves out of those buildings, largely without outside help, often while being told to, uh, you know, shelter in place, which was the wrong thing to do. If they'd been given, like, slightly better advice, maybe more of them would have survived. But most of the people who died in the building were trapped. They couldn't have gotten out anyhow. Mm. And in the, and the people who did get themselves out, their stories are so amazing. The one that might be most extreme, because we're always being told that we trample each other, that we compete, that we're social Darwinist creatures who survive through competitions in these most extreme and unimaginable moments um, in anybody's life. Because in San Francisco, you know there's going to be earthquakes. In New Orleans, you anticipate, you get hurricane warnings. But nobody had any warning about this. This guy named John Guilfoy, who'd been a college athlete, recalled, I remember looking back as I started running, and the thickest smoke was right where it was a few blocks away, and thinking that whoever's going to be in that is just going to die. There's no way you could. You're going to suffocate, and it was coming at us. I remember just running, people screaming. I was somewhat calm and I was a little bit faster than my colleagues, so I had to stop and slow up a little bit and wait for them to make sure we didn't lose each other. Now, when have you ever seen that in a Hollywood movie or, you know, anybody telling us that we're all Hobbesy and social Darwinist creatures? This guy is slowing, in the face of the scariest thing anybody's ever seen, the most unimaginable, he's slowing down out of solidarity. And that I just find completely stunning. And this is from an oral history at Columbia, and the context he says and doesn't say I'm some kind of generous guy or I'm particularly brave or altruistic or willing to die. He just thinks the most natural thing to do in the face of this incredibly terrifying thing is to slow down a little bit out of mm. solidarity. And that's kind of normal and typical. There were these vigilantes in Katrina, but the same you know, the next morning after the storm, there was bumper-to-bumper traffic of these sort of good old boys with boat trailers from the surrounding countryside trying to get their boats in New Orleans to pull people off roofs. And that's kind of more typical, that people aren't running away from danger. They're heading into it or they're sticking with people in it out of this kind of incredible solidarity and generosity that emerges. Well, Rebecca Solnit, we, uh, as usual, just scratched the surface. As I said, her book is so deep and rich that uh, we... Uh, do not have enough time to talk about so many things that are in it but this is just a preview of uh, her KPFA event that's coming up this week on Thursday at the Berkeley Arts and Letters at the Hillside Club. It's at 7.30 p.m. The address is 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley and $12 in advance, $6 for students with ID also in advance. You can also get tickets at the door. It's wheelchair accessible and you can go to Brown Paper Tickets and find out more uh, at the KPFA website, kpfa.org, and slash events uh, for more details on Rebecca's event. And the book really is quite... 
quite deep and bold in the sense that you're not afraid to rip the Bush administration for one thing, <laughs> among many other things. But I thought that was pretty interesting, too. That, um, And I wondered if you've had any negative feedback. We have just like a minute left. But um, have you had a lot of people, because you've done a lot of publicity and, and media work on this, have people jammed you up about that at all? You know, people don't you know don't freak out about the Bush administration stuff, but it's been interesting. A lot of people are not willing to believe the stuff about the vigilantes, mm -hmm. even though the evidence is pretty overwhelming. And it's interesting. It's really a status quo problem. People don't like stories that don't aren't comfortable, don't fit in with the status quo. But you know, I figure in five years everybody will believe that they always knew this was true. The way that it turns out, nobody was ever for Jim Crow. Everybody in France in 1946 had been a member of the resistance in. 1944. Uh, everybody knew the war in Iraq was a bad idea, and it turns out Hillary Clinton was always against NAFTA. You know, people come around and they don't remember it, but you know. You even talk about when you went to New Orleans and you would ask people about the vigilantes and they'd kind of look at you like you were a crazy lefty, but then they'd say actually though, I, there was this thing in so they were bringing yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, and people who were there would add pieces to it. It's really been kind of people from outside. And you know, and it's very much like the 1906 earthquake where very similar things happened. But, you know, you know I should have blocked out the whole show to talk to you. But unfortunately, I did not do that. So uh, but I do hope that people go to the event on Thursday uh, with Rebecca Solnit and get the book, A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. Rebecca, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And that was an interview that was conducted on Sunday with Andrea Lewis, and you heard her speaking with Rebecca Solnit. And as you heard, she's going to be here on Thursday, and I was just so uh, happy that uh, we're able to give you, offer you two pairs of tickets if you call in and pledge your support for KPFA. If you've tuned in to listen to Jennifer Stone, she'll be back. She gracefully bowed out of the fun drive because, well, that's, as she said, that's not her forte, and she'll be back. But right now, we do need your help, your uh, cooperation. And I was listening to this interview of Rebecca Solnit, who talks about what people do in difficult times, the extraordinary uh, community that, uh, that arises. And I'm reminded of this extraordinary community called KPFA. And we're asking you to go to the phone to fulfill Lou Hill's dream because that's what he believed as well, that people will pay for information. People will join in as a community. And we're asking you to do that now if you call in and pledge your support for KPFA. The numbers are 1-800-439-5732 or locally, of course, it's 510-848-KPFA. That's 510-848-5732. And if you call now for the next few minutes, you can get either the book, A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities that Arise in Disaster by Rebecca Solnit, and that's for a $140 pledge. Or you could get, we only have two pairs of tickets for the event that's taking place just in a few days at the Ber Berkeley Hillside. I'm looking for the information here. The Berkeley, uh, the Hillside Club, which is at 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley. And again, you can get those tickets for a $60 pledge. And uh, you also get the satisfaction of knowing that you have supported the arts here. You have supported Jennifer Stone. You're supporting KPFA. You're supporting this, this voice that says 
you know, we are good people. We are down, down in, in our soul. We are good people. We come together. We struggle through adversity together. And we're asking you to help us out this time, struggle through this financial crisis that we're going through as a nation, as a community. And we need to keep KPFA alive. 1-800-439-5732-844-439-5732. Rebecca Solnit is no stranger to KPFA. She's the author of 10 books, including River Shadows um, and uh, Technological Wild West and, of course, this book, A Paradise Built in Hell. And again, she will be speaking on Thursday at 7.30 at the Hillside Club on Cedar Street. Please call in. We are able to uh, give you two pairs of tickets if you call in with a $60 pledge or if you'd like, you could get the book for a $140 pledge. And you could do the monthly sustainer rate for $12 if you decide to get the book. And we really do know, we know you can get the book somewhere else. We know you could go on Amazon and get it. We know you could get it somewhere else. We understand that. What you're paying for, what the bulk of your dollar goes for, is to st- sustain us, to keep us alive, to pay for the electricity, to pay for the equipment, to pay for uh, all of the the, t- the technology to make sure that we were able to bring you Power to the Peaceful on Saturday, that we're able to bring you the demonstrations that we have in the last year, to bring you special programming, to bring you letters to Washington. It started off as letters from Washington, but now we want to make sure that we have an impact, that we are the antidote to the mainstream media, that while the mainstream media believes the worst of us, that we believe the best of us. Won't you please help us out right now? 1-800-439-5732-848-5732. Noelle, what what is that? Losers? No, just we only have 10 seconds left. Oh, we only have 10 seconds. No, we have a minute. Actually, we have a minute and 10 seconds. And this is really important, guys. This really, really is important. This is the kind of information that you deserve to have and to hear. Right. 1-800-439-5732-848-5732. Many thanks to that caller that is on the phone right now. And one thing that um, that is said about Rebecca Solnick's book is they may not have liked what happened, but people clearly liked who they briefly became when they were thrown into such an intensely absorbing presence. This is an absorbing presence right now. This is an institution that needs to stay alive. I won't take much of your time because Free Speech Radio News is coming up, and I hope that you do support KPFA. 1-800-439-5732. It's time for the 12th Annual Progressive Festival, Sunday, September.